When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for the world's most interesting thinkers and doers to share their ideas on video. Since 2008, we've shared over 10,000 of them. And on the Think Again podcast, we surprise our guests and me, your host, with unexpected quips unearthed from these labyrinthine archives, and then we talk about them. I'm honored today to be joined by Mark Epstein, psychiatrist and author of many influential books about the intersection of Buddhist thought and psychotherapy, including Thoughts Without a Thinker, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, and The Trauma of Everyday Life. Welcome to Think Again, Mark. Thank you. I'm hoping this show will not be part of the trauma of your everyday life. (laughs) It is already. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay, so here's how this works. Our producers have chosen short surprise interview clips for us to listen to and discuss, and they could be on any subject, and they're a surprise to me too. Shall we begin? Let's go. Fantastic. What's up first, Aaron? This is Kate Sukol on how love affects the brain. I think that the revolution in neuroscience uh, is sort of happening in two fronts. One is the study of epigenetics. And the best way to think of the epigenome is that if our genomes, our DNA, is the hardware of a computer, our epigenome is the software. So it's actually sort of telling our DNA how it should be expressed, how much of a particular protein should be expressed, and at what time during our life. And the epigenome is heavily influenced by our environment, and not just our environment, our parents' environment. And their parents' environment. Some of the software programs 
systems are so embedded that they make these changes that last for generations, others for just a small period of time. So the revolution is really coming in understanding that there is no more nature versus nurture debate. Nature and nurture are intertwined. They're really impossible to separate. And as we look at our study of brain and behavior, we need to understand that there is no behavior, there is no biology outside of the environment. And then the second point, I think, uh, in neuroscience for a long time, we've been gender blind. And although it's quite controversial, and for whatever reason people want to take different to mean smarter or better, I don't think that we can ignore anymore that male and female brains have certain circuits that are sexually dimorphic. And moving forward in the study of neuroscience, we're going to have to really pay attention to the fact that there are these differences to understand what they mean for behavior. I guess I'd be curious to hear from you about nature and nature nurture and as nurture. it plays out in you know, your own work on trauma yeah. and those kinds yeah. of things. Well, I'm not sure that the study of epigenetics necessarily is going to show that nature and nurture that those concepts no longer apply. The little that I understand about epigenetics does suggest that the environment impacts not just on the higher levels of the brain or on our consciousness, but it also impacts on our DNA. And that's a tremendous finding, really interesting finding. My understanding, which again is more a layperson's understanding, is that that research is really at the beginning. Right. And it's fascinating because the implicit understanding before all of this was that the DNA is set from the start and cannot be affected by environment or behavior or one's own growth and development. And right. now there's a mechanism, you know, on a cellular level that's been described that says, oh yes, if you change your behavior, that could actually change what's being brought out of your DNA. So that's a beautiful concept. I think still what we see as psychiatrists, as therapists, is that temperament, for instance, is there from the beginning. My children, when they were born, right away they were themselves. I didn't know them yet, but they were themselves. And as they became people, certain basic qualities were there from the beginning. Certainly before they were three, talking, thinking, conscious, remembering beings, so much of who they are, the groundwork was already there. And no matter what happens to them, epigenetically, there's a certain amount of nature that is going to be expressed no matter what. But the nurture part, my work as a therapist and my writing about trauma and so on, is a lot about the early breakdowns that either do or don't happen in children's lives with their primary attachment figures, with their caregivers, with their parents and so on. That when we are infants and young children, we're having intense emotional experiences often that we are not equipped genetically, epigenetically, mentally, neurobiologically, we're not equipped to handle by ourselves. We're totally dependent on the people around us to help us interpret, handle, or hold, is the language that I use when I write about it, 
uh, we're totally dependent on the people around us to hold those experiences for us and to teach us about what's happening, to give us immediate feedback in the holding and verbal feedback in the talking about what our primary emotional experiences are. And when that doesn't happen well enough, then there are what I have called and others before me have called primitive agonies that get embedded in the biology, you know, in the brain and the body that come out later in life and that obstruct our relationships with the world in love and work. And so those early failures or those temperamental mismatches affect us later, whether it's biologically or not, they affect us in our lives. And there are certain things we can do to help fix that. Going back to temperament, mm -hmm. what makes the picture more complicated is that temperament is a kind of environment in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. you, if you have a certain temperament, you have a certain tendency to act in the world a certain way and also react to the world in a certain yeah. way. So you are creating the weather yes. pattern. It's uh, like your aura. You're creating your own aura. I think the weird thing I'm getting at is that nature is also nurture in a sense in that your temperament has an environmental impact on yourself. I, like th it, I think that that's right. I think that's a smart way of talking about it. It's very easy to jump to, oh, epigenesis, therefore biology doesn't matter. Therefore, I'm free. What I believe, and I, I say it that way because there's a certain quality of faith involved, is that we're just free enough that we do have the potential to liberate ourselves from our worst qualities. There's a kind of transformation of the mind and therefore of the culture, of the society in which we live, that is possible. It doesn't mean that your personality actually changes all that much. It doesn't mean that your body actually becomes invulnerable to death, old age, illness. There are various constraints that make each of us ourselves, but there is a liberating possibility that's there for each of us where we can free ourselves just enough to be useful, to feel uh, fulfilled in our existence in the world. Touching on Buddhism, some Buddhist texts present a picture that would be a bit discouraging, I think, to modern minds in the sense that it might take thousands of years to achieve the sort of freedom that one might seek. Mm. As someone also grounded in Western psychiatric and psychological mm. tradition, what kind of wiggle room for liberation do you see in this life? Uh -huh. Well, you know, I wrote this book called The Trauma of Everyday Life. And I think one of the points of that title and of that book was to say that trauma is not a special thing that only happens to some people. Trauma really does happen to almost everyone. People don't just suffer from post-traumatic stress. People suffer from a pre-traumatic one because it's lurking all the time. For people who have experienced big trauma, it doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't make you bad. It's not an injury that takes away your promise or your potential. Trauma lurks for everyone. People are unlucky. They get hit with things in the body, in the environment, in their world. And it doesn't lessen their 
potential. And I think what the Buddha is saying is that we can use those traumas to help free ourselves. It doesn't have to take thousands of years. We can use even this imperfect life to do what we need to do to help our minds. I think in America anyway, we tend not to want to face things that are ugly and dark and scary. And we tend, as you say, to stigmatize trauma and suffering mm -hmm. so that when they happen to us, we're ashamed of them. And when they happen to others, we sort of want to crawl away from or those we're, Or we're sort of kind to it for a moment and then we want it to get all better really fast. <laughs> right. you know, we don't want to hear about it for too long. We can be kinder about it if we understand that, oh, it's not just that person over there who it's happening to, that it's happening to me too. And therefore, we can create a different kind of climate around it, a different kind of weather pattern, as you were talking about before. We can meet it with a different kind of energy. Great. Okay, next clip. We're ready for anything you can dish out, Aaron. This is Stephen Dubner talking about how paying politicians more could encourage them to do a better job. If we want politics to be the kind of arena where you're attracting and encouraging really competent people who do a job well, then you have to pay them a salary that's commensurate with that. If I want to hire a software engineer at Google to be world-class, or someone at an environmental firm, or someone at a utility, that I want to be really, really, really good, I don't say, well, you know, I'll let these people kind of pick themselves with a the popular vote, and then I won't pay them very much, and I'll just see how they do. In Singapore, it's probably the best example, Singapore pays its elected officials a lot of money, on par with what you'd make as you know, a banker, a lawyer, a management consultant, or something like that. And so that changes, A, the pool of people you are drawing from, and B, the way that people feel about the job. It's no longer like, well, I got into this for public service, but it's really hard to serve the public, so I'll serve myself a little bit, and then I'll do the job in order to enrich myself now or later. Instead, you have a bunch of people who treat it like a real profession. Our politics is, in fact, not very professional, even though it appears to be from the outside. That's the way the real world works, right? You get hired based on how good you are. You get paid based on how well you do. If you don't do well, you get fired or you get paid less. If we treated politics like more of a profession, like it should be, um, we would all be a lot better off. Okay, so maybe before we try to answer the question of whether we ought to pay politicians a ton of money, we should <laughs> take a step back and talk a little bit about what it is that we want from politicians in terms of the well-being of our society. Like, what do we need? I was sort of surprised and, and, and interested that he went in his discussion of politics straight to education because I think education is the area, you know, the way underserved area in our culture that certainly my work makes me think about. All this rush towards measurables and testing and right. rewarding teachers when the students' test scores go up by 10% and so on. That's not what education is. What we need from education is to create an environment for kids where learning is something that they are excited about and where there's enough resources that are being put into it so that the kids can really have a chance to learn. And uh, I think that's an entirely different goal and not measurable in the same way that he's talking about. 
I think that gets to the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, which also relates to what he's saying. He's yeah. saying that we should motivate people the way we motivate people in businesses, through money, through deliverables, through set goals and benchmarks. I guess that does work in business to some extent. Why wouldn't it work in education? I'm all for paying teachers more. I think that would be a great use of our federal tax base. I'm not so sure I'm into paying politicians more. I think the danger of what he's proposing is that as our culture gets increasingly stratified, then the wealthiest bankers, lawyers, doctors, business people, and so on are making more and more money. You want to start paying politicians at that level to keep them from going into those fields, then we're creating a class of politicians like our class of real estate developers or whatever. So no one's going to go for that. I think where you were going before with the difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic, which is a nice way to think about it, is that in terms of a happiness quotient, what's going to make you happy, making a certain amount of money makes you a lot happier than not making enough money. But making a lot more money than enough money only makes you a little bit happier if that makes any sense. Right. The biggest source of happiness for oneself is making a difference in the happiness of others. And people who are only pursuing money, those are not the happiest people in the culture. I'm going to see Hamilton tonight, and I was reading the history of Hamilton before I went to see it because I know nothing about American history. What I saw there was the soldiers in the post-revolutionary war weren't getting paid, and they were threatening to take down the government in Washington's time. And it was Hamilton who was like, we have to borrow money, we have to create a federal tax base by taxing whiskey in order to pay the soldiers so that they won't overthrow the government. Then all of a sudden I was like, oh, in Iraq, the soldiers aren't getting paid by the central government. All the instability that seems so other to us was actually our experience a couple of hundred years ago. And the thing that makes a difference is a federal government that's willing to put its money towards the general welfare of the people. In Europe, you see that that's what the wealthy countries of Northern Europe are struggling with. Is it in their interest to give some of their money to the struggling Southern European countries, or should they just kick them out? And so it's, it's a problem always, everywhere. So going back a little bit to something that you said earlier about what schools should encourage in children... What mm -hmm. should governments be encouraging? What kind of cultural principles? The taking away of recess, the taking away of music, the taking away of art, the taking away of vocational training, the taking away of reading literature now even for right. the sake of reading nonfiction, which is what's being promoted by the testing. All of that is eroding a kind of basic love of learning, I think, that the government or someone could be encouraging. Right. I guess that the people on the other side, although they might not phrase it this way, they would say that, well, no, the nice cooperative love of learning and curiosity and collaboration yeah. and so forth of which you speak are not the point of education, but rather there is all this information that we must cram into the minds of the children so that they will be competitive with 
China in the future yeah. or whatever, and that the only way that we can ensure that that happens is with measurables and deliverables and so forth and so on. How would you answer them? I would. I would answer them by agreeing. First of all, you know, it's not an either or thing. We all like to think in terms of black and white, like it's either measurables or it's like. Everyone hold hands and <laughs> color together. And, you know, you have to be able to learn math. You have to be able to learn how to write、uh, coherently. You have to be able to learn how to analyze and so on. Of course, but to only emphasize those things or to emphasize that at the expense of what we actually have always been good at with our educational system, which is to promote idiosyncratic. Individual, personal, kind of creative approaches to things.、Right. That's what differentiates us from China and India and Japan and so on. So to give that up out of a sense of oh we we can we have to compete on that other level doesn't make any sense. At least that's the way the pendulum. That's that's definitely how it has. Been. I think it's swinging back now because the parents are objecting and talking to the politicians who actually are listening. Right. And there's a movement now towards more of a middle path. Okay, so we ought to pay the politicians a little bit more money, but not、uh, not not a couple hundred million more. But like, let's pay the teachers a, a lot better. If we have anything to do with it, <laughs> yes, Mark and I are going to take、yeah. care of this shortly. All right, let's move on and see what the next video、okay. is that they have for us. Okay, I think we're ready for the next one, Aaron. This is Nicolas Negroponte on injecting nanobots into the bloodstream, which can enhance the brain. How do you interact with the brain, pretty directly? And almost everybody who's done that has done it from the outside with sticking pins and needles, or EEG, or MEG, or other ways. And the key to my prediction is the best way to interact with the brain is from the inside. From the bloodstream, because if you inject tiny robots into the bloodstream, they can get very close to all the cells and nerves and things in your brain, really close. So, if you want to input information or read information, you do it through the bloodstream. So, by extension, you could, in theory, load Shakespeare into your bloodstream, and as The little robots get to the various parts of the brain. They deposit little pieces of Shakespeare or little pieces of French. If you want to learn how to speak French, so in theory you can ingest information. I won't be around to see whether it's true, but you know, like many of these predictions, it doesn't have to be true <laughs> as long as it gets people thinking. And there are people thinking about this and looking at it quite seriously. The digital world today. Is like plastics were 25 years ago. It's important field, but kind of over. Digital world is like plastics, and the biotech world is the is the next phase. Okay, so I am terrified of that idea. I do not <laughs> like the idea of little nanobots going into my bloodstream and depositing anything in my brain. But it would be lovely if I had access. To the entire library of knowledge and literature at a thought's notice, 
which is not going to happen in my lifetime because I simply don't have enough time to read it all. My memory is not perfect enough to remember it all. So I am of two minds about this. Well, first of all, you do have access already. You have access to all the learning of uh, our entire civilization at a moment's notice. I was so disappointed with his thing. I thought he was going to a different place. I thought he was going straight to a <laughs> Buddhist place that we can have access to our minds, forget the brain, you know, by going inside. There's a beautiful passage in the Dhammapada, which is the sort of classic collection of Buddhist verse for lay people, that talks about the mind that says it's subtle, invisible, and treacherous. And it sits in the cave of the heart. So the mind and heart in Buddhist culture are one thing, not just localized in the brain. And then it goes on to say a disciplined mind is the road to freedom. We don't need little, like, tiny robots to get inside our mind, our consciousness. See, we have this quality that other animals, chimpanzees and dolphins and elephants and uh, maybe octopus, have this ability to know the mind from a higher place in the brain, from the prefrontal right. cortex or wherever consciousness might lie, we have evolved the capacity to be able to already go inside the mind. There's no blood-brain barrier to consciousness. So we can develop aspects of the mind through our own effort, through our own intelligence. We can develop qualities of our mind that were exactly what was inspiring Shakespeare. But at the same time, as someone who believes in learning, I just think, like, fine, yeah, okay, I have access to the complete works of Shakespeare in that I can, like, Google it and I can flip read through it. the pages and yeah. read it. But what I don't have is instant recall of the entire canon that I can cross-reference in order to think deeply about it. Likewise, the Buddhist canon. I don't have access to all of the books in the Zen tradition, Theravada, Tibetan tradition. I have to spend a bunch of years muddling around, reading them, listening memorizing to people them talk. like they used to do. Yeah, maybe that, right? Yeah. Except that I can't devote my life to memorizing and them because the I'm point? not a monk. And what's the point? Well, the point might be that if I had access to all of that instead of muddling about listening to other people and gathering bits and mm. pieces in the little time I do have to read, then I might have a more comprehensive vantage point from which to actually think about this stuff. So whatever I arrive at in the end as my understanding of Buddhism or Shakespeare or the world or philosophy or whatever is mediated by the totally idiosyncratic way I've gone about acquiring that information. And that's what makes you you. That's <laughs> and is that a good thing that's inherently? That's a good thing. Inherently, it's a good <laughs> thing that you're you. And you could use what strikes you. They're never going to make a robot to go inside your brain and, <laughs> and lay Shakespeare down. So you are saying and you feel that what is present already in terms of consciousness is good enough? Yeah, what I'm saying is this, this capacity that we have already for self-reflection is an amazing thing. And that it's amazing just leaving it alone, but also it can be developed. Uh, we already have the technology to do that. And that's the Buddhist thing about inner science, that it's a complement to the outer materialist Western science that has brought tremendous benefit to the world. No doubt about it. But the inner science and the outer science working together 
in order to talk about it now, we have to talk about the brain because the brain is, is how people think about the mind. But right. that's not the only way to think about the mind. What do you think the contrast is between the kind of self-reflective consciousness that Buddhism tries to cultivate and Woody Allen's consciousness in the way mm -hmm. that he's constantly self-reflecting and talking about his own thoughts, which seems sick to us somehow or neurotic. I think they're very similar. Woody Allen is a comedian, as you say, and an entertainer. So he's making art out of it. The Buddha made a different kind of art out of it. It's hard to know who's reached more people, you know? Oh, right. <laughs> we don't know what Woody Allen's impact 2,500 years from now will be. That's but right. the Buddha has stayed around. But he's using that same capacity of self-observation, of humor, with the sense that there's a liberating possibility in getting to know our own neuroses. And also what the Buddha offered was this amazing thing, which is that our minds seek liberation that simply bringing awareness to whatever it is, is enough to set it free. You know, that there's an inherent movement towards freedom in the mind that, again, you have to take as an act of faith until you start to experience it. And then when you start to experience it, it's like, oh, wow, this, is, this actually is true. I've noticed now this tremendous movement that's going on toward people meditating, talking about mm -hmm. meditation and mindfulness and so on. Now there's an app, Headspace, yep. that got a big write-up. What do you think is going on there? Do you think that this is a sort of cultural historical moment? Do you think this is a fad? No, I think it's been steadily happening in my lifetime. Over the past 50 years, it's been steadily happening. I think it was probably happening for the 50 years before that. I think it's a function of the world getting smaller. So the flip side of it is like Christianity taking over Korea. We're getting to know the traditions that held meditation stripped of their cultural context so we can sort of see what's useful about it or what we need from it. And we're grabbing onto it. And I'm sure there are things latent in our Judeo-Christian culture that we can't see anymore, that another culture never exposed to it, like the idea of grace, for instance, that people can say, oh, yes, we need that in our culture. You know, this is a new way of telling us something that maybe we knew before, but we didn't have direct access to it. So I think it's the world teaching itself. Mark Epstein, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been a lot of fun. For me too. Well, first of all, I'll ask you, is there anything you want to leave the audience with, you know, aside from all that we've talked about? One little nugget that I always come back to is Freud used to say that the best he could do for someone was to take them from a state of neurotic misery and bring them to one of common unhappiness. And I used to think the Buddha, you know, was all about dealing with common unhappiness and taking you to another place, then I started to think that, oh, what the Buddha is really talking about is common unhappiness by itself is enough. You can use that to transform your minds, to be able to, to own it, to admit to it, and to learn to be kind to each other because of it is transforming in its own right. So Great. Freud might have been onto something. So if I could ask you now to mm. press the button on the, the Generate Quote button and read the quote of the week to our audience. Use the force, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate. And that is it for Think Again this week. Please come find us on the web at bigthink.com forward slash think again and on Twitter at bigthinkagain. Think Again.